As Jesus often did, he spoke to these Galilean hearers in language they could understand, and today it's about agriculture. I'm curious. I grew up part of my growing up years on a farm. How many of you, just raise your hand if you grew up on a farm. Great, there are a few of you. In a moment, I'm going to tell you everything I know about farming. It it will not take long. And I would implore those of you who raised your hands not to correct me, because this is my story and I'm sticking with it. When you look at this text, you see the farmer throwing the seed out. This is very unscientific farming. Last week, Laurie and I drove to Oklahoma where our mothers live, where we're from. And we drove along Interstate 55, um, which is an experience in itself. It's always under construction. The cars are zooming really fast. I might have occasion have been one of those drivers. But Laurie, who is seated at most of the time in the passenger seat, has an imaginary brake that she puts down on the floor (laughs) to remind me when I'm going too fast. But when you're driving down Interstate 55 all the way through Illinois, you see these incredible farms that just kind of are mind-blowing to someone who's from where I came from. The soil where I came from was about this thick. We didn't grow much. The soil here is this wonderful black earth that grows anything. And you're driving down Interstate 55 and you see this scientific farming with these these amazing crops. The corn is already, it's this tall. It's as tall as me. The soybeans are beautiful and green. God's kingdom's flourishing greenery is just all over the place. You look at this, the rows are absolutely straight. No wonder. The tractors are driven by a global positioning system. They can't not be straight. The tractors have cabs and they are air-conditioned. They have stereo music playing in the cabs. If I sound jealous, it's because I am. (laughs) Our tractors were loud and noisy and hot. And we guided the rows just by dead reckoning, which was why all the crops looked like this. This is modern farming of corn and soybeans in Illinois. Ancient farmers could never have imagined farming like this. They tilled the soil hardly at all. The text tells us nothing about them actually preparing the ground. They had a sack thrown over their shoulder. We have a statue, by the way, just as you exit to the left, of the seed thrower. It's exactly what it looked like. They would dip their hand into a sack of seed, and they would throw it out. If they tilled the soil, maybe they did so later. But that's how ancient farmers farmed it. And Jesus connects with those in this story who didn't till the ground, who just threw the seeds on the ground, who didn't have modern techniques. They wrestled with weeds. Modern-day weeds don't have a chance with the insecticides and pesticides and all the things that we put on the crops. The ancient farmers had a battle on their hands. They had a battle on their hands because 
Four things could happen when they threw the seed on the ground. Three of them were bad. In the parable today, some, saw, some of the seeds fell on a hardened path. The birds came along and ate it. Some fell on the rocky soil where it sprang up quickly, but it didn't and couldn't develop roots, and so the plants died. Some of the seed fell among thorns, which was depriving the seed of light and moisture, and those seeds too died. In a one in four chance, some seed fell on the good soil. And those seeds produced an abundant crop. The parable teaches us a lot about what it was like to be an ancient farmer. The difference between then and now. Now, Obviously, our lesson this morning is not about farming techniques, but something far more important. Assume with me for a moment, and Jesus tells us himself what this parable is about... But assume with me for a moment that the seed sowing is about God's word going forth among people. Some hear it and act on it. And they act on it gladly and they they produce an amazing crop, if you will. Some don't get it at all. For some, it never even germinates. But for some people, it really takes root. Let's assume for a moment... That you, all of us, have had an encounter with God's grace. You're not here by accident. You have had an encounter with God's good grace. The seed of God's word has taken root in you. You've been receptive soil for God's good work in your life. By the way, I don't always assume that. One of my good friends happens to be a seminary professor was a guy who didn't even find Christ until he was 30 years old, but he spent every Sunday of his early life in the church that his father, where his father preached. He heard the word constantly. He heard it, was exposed to it, but it never took root in his life. That can happen to people. People can come to church and the the, the seed of God's word doesn't really take root. It's entirely possible that someone could be in that place here. But let me assure you, God is not and never is in the business of giving up on anyone, as my friend would tell us. But let's assume for a moment that the seed has sprouted in your life. The usual take on this passage is to turn our attention to the bad and worldly things that can starve out the work of God in our life. We can all read this passage and say, that might be me, the cares of this world, my desire for wealth or privilege, my comforts, my attention to the things of this world rather than to the things of God. That could be me in this passage. Frankly, that could be me. So if I wanted to ladle out some guilt today about this passage telling you to straighten up and fly right and pay attention to God and quit letting those things happen, I could make that that take on this passage happen. But I also would have to tell us that every one of us, including me, have traded the banquet table of God's incredible meal for the cold porridge this world has to offer. 
We have all done that. So we could ladle out the guilt here and and just feel bad that we have done that. But let's not go there this morning. There's plenty of guilt to go around if that's what you need to hear. But what if we saw it in a different way? What if we understood that our cure for the attachment to the things of this world was not just us feeling guilty and therefore saying to ourselves, I will determine today to do more for God. I don't think that works very well. We've all had those moments where we've made that statement in our minds and it doesn't seem to last. There's another way to look at it. Dallas Willard, a wonderful Christian theologian and thinker who recently passed away, is now with the Lord, was able to move his incredible mind from the inscrutable minutia of arcane theology to the very practical reality of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and to help people understand what it means to live out the Christian life as an apprentice of Jesus. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Willard notes that there are people who would like to be a co-laborer with Jesus. That's something they would like to do. It, after all, sounds like an ideal life, walking along with Jesus, enjoying his presence, having wonderful conversations with him, praying and feeling the peace that Jesus provides. A lot of us would like to do that. We certainly would like to enjoy the fruits We like that notion of our lives producing a 30 or 60 or 100-fold return on our investment of time and energy. Willard says what we mostly lack, though, is the willingness to commit ourselves to some kind of a discipleship process, to actually become an apprentice to Christ, an apprentice to his way of life. Being a Christian is one thing. We enjoy those blessings. But to learn to, from Jesus on a daily basis just somehow seems inaccessible to us. Dallas Willard points out that being a disciple simply means to be with Jesus. Learning to be like him. Being a disciple means simply to be with Jesus. Learning to be like him. We often see it as the acquisition of knowledge. We often see it and we hear a passage like this of the rejection of worldly things. Both of those things play a part in this. But the real issue is, are we interested? Are we willing to commit to a process to walk alongside Jesus to learn to be like him? At Christ Church... We believe, and you hear it all the time from Dan and from a lot of others, that we believe this apprenticeship is possible and it's necessary for every Christian. It's why we talk so much about our grow ministry. It's why there are always announcements about signing up for something or being in a small group or entering into a discipleship process with two or three other people. That's we, we do all of this not just because we're interested in programs, but because what we're interested in doing is making it possible for us to enter into relationships with other people 
that put us into an apprenticeship role with Jesus himself. We want people to be aware and and ongoing, even eager participants in the ongoing story of God. And that happens. That happens when the seed gets planted and we let it grow because God always is a partner in making that seed grow. Scott Peck once defined the word serendipity as the gift of finding valuable things not sought for. The gift of finding valuable things not sought for. God has amazing, valuable things for us, even if we don't yet know what we should be seeking. Our God is a God who can take anyone, anyone, for whom the seed of faith has not yet germinated or it is crowded out by the weeds of this world. And he can make that happen. Our God is a God who can take the struggling, starving plant and make it blossom by his work of grace. That's what God does. God is serendipitously at work already in your life. Whether we acknowledge it or feel it or know it or not, God is already at work in your life and mine. He's always aware of our needs. He's always concerned about us. And he's always, usually gently, usually quietly, but he is always wooing you to himself. That's what God does. God is serendipitously lovingly wooing you. And just as he cares for his creation, the beautiful creation we see in these lovely summer days, he cares for you in gracious ways. He's still sowing seeds in your life. And he desires that they take root. He desires that they always take root. The issue is not the seeds. They're always present. The issue is the receptivity of the soil. And whether we will participate in making it so. The psalmist said of the capacities of our God, and this has to do with his physical creation. You care for the land and water. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. For so you have ordained it. You drench the furrows and level its ridges. You soften its showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. This is what God does in his creative order. And this is the kind of work he wants to do in his highest creation. Us. This is what God wants to do. The psalmist is telling us that God is graciously offering himself constantly to his people. And he's regularly doing good things in and around us and among us. This is what God does. He's sown seeds generously. And he can make those seeds grow wherever he chooses. In the prime soil or even in the soil that needs a little help. In God's economy... It's as much about the seeds as it is the soil. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. 
God's purposes will be fulfilled. When you're preaching through the lectionary text, at least this is true for me, sometimes it's not always obvious what the four passages, like the four passages that are listed in your bulletin, have in common with one another. The first one's clear, the Matthew passage, the Psalm passage, the Isaiah passage that I just read. They they make sense with the context of the sowing of the seeds. I have to admit, I was stumped when I looked at Romans chapter 8 a couple of weeks ago. And I couldn't figure out what Romans chapter 8 had to do with these texts. It's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. I don't know how many of you like jigsaw puzzles. I actually am far too impatient for them. I don't like them at all, but I'm still going to tell about them. Our family on occasions would like to, our four kids and Laurie are great at jigsaw puzzles. They have a father who just kind of looks over their shoulder going, that looks good. How about that one over there? And I get that you can kind of frame it. I get the straight edge pieces go here. And I, I get that it's important to find the corner pieces. I mean, I sort of get it. I just don't really enjoy it. But it's fun to see a jigsaw puzzle come together. And there's the picture. And from Romans 8, chapter 1, for me, there's the picture. Paul says very simply, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You say it again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Good. Maybe, and hopefully, you don't feel any condemnation when you read the parable of the sower. You're grace-filled enough to be able to know where you need to be forgiven and that God cares for you. But maybe there's somebody here who hears a text like this and you just kind of hang your head and you think, there the Bible goes again, reminding me of my deficiencies, my attachment to the things of this world, my lack of attention to the things of God. Where do we go from here? Where we go from here is remembering the text from Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can start right where you are. Modern science can do us some good in explaining the things we've been talking about. Scientists say that Seeds properly stored, the right temperature, the right environment. There are seeds that could be planted 200, 300 years from now and come to full fruition of a growing plant. There's nothing wrong with the seeds properly distributed, properly stored. Those seeds will last nearly forever. Well, God has sown seeds in your life. In fact, he's still sowing seeds in your life. But even the seeds that he sowed long ago, even your first positive responses to the gospel, even your first embrace of Jesus as Lord, 
even in your first understandings of what God was calling you to do and be, if those seeds have sort of gone dormant, they can be revived. Those seeds are good and strong. He's still tossing out even new seeds for future opportunity and hope and healing for you. God is going to do most of the work because that's what God does. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for any who wants to develop an apprenticeship with Jesus, the starting point isn't just yesterday. It's now. It's now. It's good to remember that the God who will hold us accountable for our use of his gifts also says to us there is no condemnation for those who might have squandered them. There's a new season. The seeds can grow fresh and new. The plants can thrive. The weeds can be dealt with. Would you believe and dare to act on this parable and believe that God has for your future the promise of growth, the possibility of an apprenticeship with Jesus himself, and the life of an incredible return as a result of that partnership. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful, amazing text. Thank you for the promise that there is a a reality here, that the flourishing of our life the strengthening of our witness, the multiplication of our joy can all be reached, not by our own efforts, but by this wonderful partnership with the Lord who has planted these wonderful seeds. Lord, for every one of us, may they flourish and grow. May we want that to happen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.